is Our American Stories, a special Labor Day segment. We love to talk about the arts, history, life, love, death, and work. And the work in the arts is something very often neglected. We wanted to share a couple of our favorite stories. This one about the song Another Brick in the Wall Part 2. It turns out the British boys were in Los Angeles, Pink Floyd, trying to solve the problem of this song. Something was missing. They didn't know what. And this is before the age of the internet. And they came up with an idea, one of the producers. Get some of those kids near an Abbey Road school in London, the kids with the Cockney accent, get them into the studio and have them record the chorus. Let's take the story from there. Hustled together, sneaked out the school like as quickly as possible. Marched along the road, round the corner, and we were all sort of, it was a lot of buzzing, you know, what, what's going on, what are we doing, you know, what, what's this all about? And then the next thing we realised, we turned up and we were at Pink Floyd's recording studio, which was literally round the corner from the school. What the children didn't realise was that their maverick music teacher was about to make them the stars of one of the most famous songs of all time. And it was like, wow, you know, there was sort of carpets on the floors and walls and you could see huge mixing desks. And they gave us the words, they played us the track. And we were all, oh, yeah, that's a great song, we'll have some of that, let's sing that. <laughs> well, Roger Waters talks about the first time he heard the song with the kids on the recording. It's still... Gives him the goosebumps. I remember sitting in producer's workshop on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles and this package arriving and it was the tape back with the kids. And they threw all the faders up, pressed play, and I still have hairs standing up on my arms and everywhere, just remembering the sound, what it sounded like. When it came out, hearing those kids sing. Here's what it sounded like without the kids in the mix. Leave them kids alone. All in all, it's just another brick in the wall. And another brick in the wall with the children singing. And another great story about a song at work had to do with the making of Gimme Shelter. In 1969, Jagger and the Boys, well, they came up with a background singer who called in last minute wearing her pajamas, hair rollers, 
And this lady tells the story about that hit-making night in a recording studio in Los Angeles. The song was recorded in 1969. It turns out the Stones were having a real hard time. They were stuck back and forth from London to L.A. And there was something missing in this song, and Mick needed something. And, well, the help, the intervention, the resuscitation, well, it came from a lady who no one knows, but hers is the haunting voice in this song. Her name is Mary Clayton. Let's hear from her and the boys in the band about this remarkable song. What a great studio. Boy, did we have some time in this studio. So it was like very late at night, and I was very, you know, a little pregnant. Had curlers and the whole thing in my head, getting ready to go to bed. And we got a call, Mary. There's a group of guys in town called Rolling, the Rolling Somebodies. And they're from England, and they need somebody that will sing with them. They picked me up with silk pajamas on, a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf on my head. We said it would be wonderful if a woman sang this part about that I'd written about rape, murder, and all this. It was in the middle of the night, and and then we thought well, we would love to have a woman sing this part. I didn't know her, and from Adam. And then she turned up in her curler. She was in bed, and she got out of bed. And you know, it was a kind of raunchy part to sing. I said, "What? Rape, murder? It's just a shot away." I started to sing. Oh, it's a shot away. With Mick. She sings the lyrics right along me and with a lot of personality, which is what was needed. What I liked was that she could sing. She was able to be merry. She didn't have to bring it down. He said, you want to do another one? I said, sure, I'll do another one. I mean, she just did it like a couple of times, you know. So I said to myself, mm-hmm, I'm going to do another one. I'm going to blow them out of this room. <laughs> I went in again, and I did that pass on the, uh, the part that says, uh, rape, murder, just a shot away. So I had to go up another octave. things at sort of two in the morning and then you come in the next day and you go, what the hell? that's good. Yeah. I don't hear a hand <laughs> And people don't equate putting music together with work, but these guys were trying to solve problems. The Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, doing it right here in America. A great American story here on Our American Stories. Our special Labor Day edition continues after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and a special Labor Day show for you. And if you're not familiar with the show, we tell stories, lots of them. And we love the story of work, how it impacts all of us. Work for our individual selves, our families, and every kind of work, from the artist's work to the astronaut's work. And this story, and this is some of our narrated storytelling that we do here on Our American Stories, and nowhere else will you get this kind of storytelling on the radio. And this story is about the second man to walk on the moon, and you have never heard a story about work and life like this one. Some people call me the space cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. Some people call me Maurice. Because I speak of the pompous of love. Fighter pilot. War hero. Son, MIT rocket scientist, father. He has been all these things and a lot more things, but he's mostly remembered for one thing, something he's a little tired of being asked about. After 60 years of it, you might have been too. He's also tired of it because it's not enough to him. It's something we did, he says. Now, we should do something else. His name is Buzz Aldrin. And that something he did, that one thing, was being the second man to ever walk on the moon, answering his president's call of duty. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You'd think his vanity license plate would be Moon Guy, yet it's Mars Guy. It's that something else he thinks we should do. Mars. Born in Montclair, New Jersey, Buzz Aldrin's mother had the maiden name Moon. Coincidence, you ask? I don't think so. His real name is Edwin, but his sister couldn't say brother. The name Buzzer just kept coming out of her mouth, and the nickname Buzz sticked. His country is glad it did, and Edwin walking on the moon is not nearly as profound as a Buzz doing so. Buzz was a Boy Scout, as so many great men are. He was also shaped by his family, in good ways and in bad. Check ignition and may God's love be with you. His grandfather put a bullet through his brain. His mom swallowed pills to her death. His father was almost too alive in his life. A career military man, his father knew Amelia Earhart, one of the Wright brothers, and took a transatlantic flight on the Hindenburg before it blew up. He wanted his only boy, Buzz, to be just like him, brave and brilliant. 
But Buzz was shy and sensitive. And he drove himself to his father's dreams for him. When he flew combat missions in the Korean War and was decorated with the distinguished flying cross, his father said, and? And so he went to MIT and earned a doctorate of science in astronautics. These elite experiences led him to NASA, and when he walked on the moon, his dad said, and? The second man to walk on the moon, number two, his father was so affected by it that he waged a one-man campaign to get the Postal Service to change its Neil Armstrong First Man on the Moon commemorative stamp to one that said First Men on the Moon so it could include Buzz. He would lose. And Buzz would lose something much greater when he returned home. As GQ magazine put it, he discovered the melancholy of all things done. He was a conqueror with nothing left to conquer but his own demons. NASA had no more use for Buzz. They sent him around the world like a PR flack. Even though he was a scientist, his mind was left idle. Buzz resigned and returned to the Air Force, but they didn't exactly know what to do with an academic who had just been to the moon. And so Buzz picked up the bottle. He put down his marriage to the mother of his three children. He retired and went into rehab, tried out marriage again for a year, and drank some more. A Cadillac dealership sounded like a good place to go, but he didn't sell very many of them. As if it could get any worse, he created this song with Snoop Dogg. Are you ready to put on your spacesuit? Strap in for the G-Force liftoff. Countdown is getting very close now to the adventure of a lifetime. If his life tells us anything, it's that we are complex human beings, all with our own crosses, all capable of our own triumphs, all with a need for love in our lives, especially the love of a father and a mother. To close our tribute to Buzz Aldrin, an American great, we take you to his telling of his time on the moon. First with seeing his friend Neil Armstrong becoming the first man to ever set foot on the moon. It was absolutely correct that the captain, the commander, make the first descent and walk on the moon. Airman from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon. We came in peace for all mankind. Uh, that, that statement really, to me, was a very symbolic one of not just our mission, but all of the Apollo effort. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes on the Beautiful, just beautiful. If you look real close, you can see that I'm uh, saluting the flag. And for a military person, that was indeed a very, very proud moment to be on the moon saluting uh, the flag. And then Buzz did something a little more reflective. He radioed over to NASA. This is the LM pilot. I'd like 
Ending his radio communication, he then read from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, which says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Buzz said of this verse, I read the words which I had chosen to indicate our trust that as man probes into space, we are in fact acting in Christ. I sensed especially strongly my unity with our church back home and with the church everywhere, and then took communion. Later recounting in Guidepost magazine, I ate the tiny host and swallowed the wine. I gave thanks for the intelligence and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the Sea of Tranquility. It was interesting for me to think, the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were the communion elements. Buzz Aldrin marked his territory in his own special way and marked what he saw as God's territory in his special way. Although NASA wouldn't let him share with the world what he had done. But in the end, who's going to stop Buzz Aldrin? At least for as long as he continues to wear jockey underwear. Jockey, supporting greatness since 1876. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our special Labor Day edition. Men at work, women at work, and what work brings to all of us, the good and the bad. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, our special Labor Day edition, and our U.S. military, our soldiers, and everyone involved in law enforcement. Well, that's work, too. And so many of our police and law enforcement specialists in this country just do yeoman's work, and the only time they tend to make the news is when they do something wrong or they do something that is questionable. And then everybody comes in on Monday morning quarterbacks. And every once in a while, there are some really bad cases where some, some law enforcement officers are, are do, do some bad things. But the vast majority don't. And here in Our American Stories, we regularly tell stories about remarkable men and women doing remarkable things and some paying the ultimate price. And here is one such tale. It's a story of Marine veteran... Massachusetts State Trooper Thomas Clardy. The day, March 16th, 2016. 
Thomas was pulling an extra shift before his regularly scheduled duty day to help provide for his seven children. It was noon, and he had just pulled over a Chevy Tahoe. What happened next happened fast. A Nissan Maxima traveling in the outermost lane suddenly veered across three lanes of traffic, almost as if it was intentional. It didn't slow down. It didn't deviate. It just bed straight at Trooper Clarty, and then it slammed into his cruiser. The incredible force of the impact pushed he and his police cruiser into the Tahoe, and all three of them landed in the grass off the highway. Though the ambulance arrived quickly, State Trooper Clarty was declared dead on arrival. At his funeral outside St. Michael's Catholic Church, the Massachusetts State Pipes and drums honored their fallen. While 1,120 state troopers stood at attention, how do we know that's the number exactly? Well, because his young daughter counted every single trooper as they passed. That's how we know. Perhaps more than anyone, Trooper Clardy will live in the hearts of his children each of whom wrote a note to be read at his funeral by his friend, retired police sergeant Al Tony. You can hear him struggling to get through these heart-rendering letters. Daddy, I love you. Didn't care. I love the fact that you didn't care what other people thought. I loved how funny you were. I loved all the stories and jokes. I love you, Dad, Emma. Daddy, I remember even though you were running... Late to work, you always had time to say goodbye. And you always had time to play a game. We always had time to play a game with you. I love you, Daddy. I love Eva. Daddy, I loved that you cared whatever. You didn't care what anyone thought about you. You would always make us happy. You would always make sure that we had everything we needed. I love you and miss you. Love, Gabriella. Daddy. My dad was fav- my dad's favorite thing with him. My my favorite thing with my dad was his snug was snuggling with him, hugs and kisses. Love Noah. Lily, my dad was a great guy. I loved him for many things. I loved how he always said to me, "I can't wait till I get to work." And and tell and tell and tell the guys I work with about the most beautiful girl in the world. But Sergeant Tony saved the best one for last from Trooper Clardy's 17-year-old son, Tyler, who, much to all the funeral's delight, brought a laugh and a smile to everyone's face as he divulged the secret moments he long shared and treasured with his dad. Tyler says to me, in 2007, he was nine years old. His father came. They had a birthday party for him. His father came to him, and father says, come with me, son. His father took him out. He says, where are we going? They went to the show. Pulled up to the theater and went to the show. Tom turned to Tyler, and he said, it's about time, son. I'm going to take you to your first R-rated movie. Um, the summer before, Tyler states also that the summer before his um, senior year in high school, um, he was turned 17. 
He says his dad came home. He says, it was like any other day. His dad came home and his dad said, son, come with me. They went out to the backyard, made a fire in the fire pit. Tom put two chairs around the fire pit. Tyler says they sat there for three hours. They made hot dogs and hamburgers, just the two of them. And Tom talked to Tyler about life. Not only did Tom talk about Tyler, tell Tyler about life, Tom told Tyler what he expected of him in life. That's a father. That's a father that cares. Trooper Clarity, remembered by his kids, remembered by his colleagues. The thin blue line really is a fraternity of sorts. A brotherhood that doesn't require kinship, but is born by shared sacrifice. Here is an officer sharing a poem for his fallen brothers. Here is Chad Miner. Hello, my name is Chad Miner. I work for the police department in Powell, Wyoming. In 2011, we lost one of our patrol sergeants to an off-duty accident. During that time, dispatcher Jesse Borcher forwarded a poem to me titled The Final Inspection. I would like to share that poem with you today. The policeman stood and faced his God, which must always come to pass. He hoped his shoes were shiny, just as brightly as his brass. Step forward now, policeman, how shall I deal with you? Have you always turned the other cheek? To my church have you been true? The policeman squared his shoulders and said, No, Lord, I guess I ain't. Because those of us who carry badges can't always be a saint. I've had to work most Sundays, and at times my talk was rough, and sometimes I've been violent, because the streets are awfully tough. But I never took a penny that wasn't mine to keep, though I worked a lot of overtime when the bills got just too steep. And I never passed a cry for help, though at times I shook with fear, and sometimes... God forgive me, I've wept unmanly tears. I know I don't deserve a place among the people here. They never wanted me around, except to calm their fear. If you've a place for me here, Lord, it needn't be so grand. I never expected or had too much, but if you don't, I'll understand. There was silence all around the throne, where the saints had often trod, as policemen waited quietly for the judgment of his God. Step forward now, policemen. You've borne your burdens well. Come walk a beat on heaven's streets. You've done your time in hell. The author of this poem is unknown. We would like to extend our thoughts and prayers to the families who have lost loved ones in the line of duty, and also to those families that currently share their loved ones in the line of duty. May God bless you. And here on Our American Stories, we spend the week each year celebrating the fallen and honoring the fallen And you've got to do both. It can't just be morose. You heard folks laughing at those letters. And these men and women who serve us, we need to serve them back. They're in the news all the time. It's not good. Uh, They're getting support scantily. And it's our job here in Our American Stories to share the good. Uh, It's one of those rare places, the redemptive even. Uh, That's what we do. We don't do it bleeds, it leads. We do the opposite. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. This is our special Labor Day segment. And my goodness, the men in blue and the women in blue, that's a job more important than almost any other in this country. And for that reason, we're telling these stories. More after these messages. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of the work we do.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our special Labor Day edition. And what's the point of work if you can't go out fishing? And we love father-son stories here on Our American Stories. And we bumped up against one in the Wall Street Journal by one of our favorite writers, writer Keith Blanchard, who brought home much more than a fishing trophy from a trip to Mexico with his dad. Among the most beautiful words in the English language are certainly home and family. Bacon is a contender, too, in some circles. But to sports fishermen, no words are more beautiful than fish on, an adrenaline-fueled exclamation that they shout across the back of a boat when something has at last found its way to their hooks. I've been deep-sea fishing since I was too small to remember. My dad, my grandfather, and I would steam out at least a couple of times each summer from Barnegat on the Jersey Shore in my grandfather's 40-foot fishing boat, Sea Doll. My grandfather was always on the hunt for a trophy sailfish, back when the sea was still thick with such things. And he and my father had fished all the way out on the continental shelf for years, staying overnight and sleeping in shifts so they wouldn't be run down by freighters. But when I came along, they stayed responsibly closer to shore, hunting striped bass and settling, sometimes, for the much-maligned Atlantic bluefish. These were all sea monsters to the preteen version of me, with their slack jaws and unblinking eyes, flipping over and over on the deck and skidding and slip-sliding into the hold. I'll never forget the raw anticipation I felt when our boat slipped free from the dock in the early morning when it was still dark, foam churning behind us to the thrum of the motor as we pushed North America away behind us. But kids grow up, and life moves on. My grandfather passed away, his boat was sold, and over time I kind of lost touch with both my old man and the sea. And so, decades later, right around the time I turned 40, I decided to stop thinking about it and to organize a father-son fishing trip. It took my dad about three seconds to say yes. And what would we fish for? Well, the ocean is filled with wonders. But deep-water fishermen all share one bucket list catch, the marlin, king of the sea. And so my dad and I, with my good friend Roddy, an experienced marlin hunter, found ourselves motoring out past the chalky crags of Baja California's Pacific coast, 3,000 miles and a world away from New Jersey's Barnegat Bay, on the first day of a three-day fishing trip. Out of the ghostly marina at dawn and into the cold, dewy air of the Pacific, with the ceremonial first beer a little later, we drank a toast to my grandfather, and Roddy gave us the brief. A cross between a shark, a unicorn, and a freight train, marlins often weigh more than 200 pounds, though some monsters are much heavier, and can swim as fast as a car, leaping majestically out of the water when trying to throw a hook. And they're Neptune's own serial killers, eating anything they can smack and stun with that bone-hard bill. They're also smart and worthy opponents that work hard to stay out of your boat, thrashing and slicing at your line with their bills, even fouling your lines by swimming under the hull. Hauling one can take an hour, sometimes much more, of focused work. Your job is to keep that rod bent, reeling in the line when the fish will let you. A few hours in, we lucked out. Fish on! My dad slid into the fighting chair, set the pole, and started winding away. At several points, I jokingly offered to take a shift, but he just growled and continued his determined struggle, ultimately reeling in a nice one, 160 pounds and almost 7 feet long from the tip of the bill to the fork in its tail. We took our proof of triumph photos and released the fish to help keep the population healthy. Later we celebrated at a bar, where I became acquainted with the awkward feeling of drinking with one's father while busty waitresses wearing Pancho Villa-style shot glass bandoliers trot around pushing drinks. I was ready to hook my own trophy, but the second day was more like a nature cruise than a fishing expedition. We saw dolphins and sea turtles and two whales that surfaced together right in front of our boat. Our only fish-on moment came when Roddy hooked a hump-headed bottle-green mahi-mahi. Back to shore we went to eat our humble, delicious catch of the day. 
Our third and last day broke cold and overcast. Good fishing weather. The hours ticked by with all of us staring hopefully at the end of the rods, but we just couldn't will that telltale bounce into being. By the time we turned for home, I was at peace with it. A bad day's fishing is still better than a good day at work, right? Then, suddenly, just as we were about to pull up the lines, fish on! I scrambled into the chair and focused hard while my proud dad snapped photos like a maniac. And then the sharks arrived, circling the boat in anticipation of what we were about to reel in. Sharks love marlin, especially when humans have helpfully hooked them. The boat's crew bravely, or was it insanely, leaned over the stern and smacked one away with a bat and pulled another out of the way with the hook of a long-handled gaff. My muscles were in agony and my reeling hand blistered up. I was functioning on pure adrenaline, feeling every inch a soft and pudgy city kid. At one point, my prize leapt out of the water and flashed me those beautiful stripes. Would this marlin be that coveted middle line for my tombstone? Born, caught marlin, died? Or the dreaded one that got away? Today, my marlin a fiberglass replica of it, actually, hangs on my office wall. My dad's replica hangs in his house. Mine was slightly smaller than his, as he will remind you again and again if you let him. Every time that giant memento inspires questions and I get to tell my story, our story, I picture my dad doing the same thing, and it brings a smile. A bad day of fishing beats a good day at work, but a good day of fishing beats almost anything at all. You know, what a great piece of writing, again, by Keith Blanchard in the Wall Street Journal, and here at Our American Stories, we let the writers themselves tell the stories. What a crazy idea. And next up on our Labor Day special is Billy Joel at the University of Pennsylvania giving a master class on songwriting and the work and the mechanics that go into it. And again, the labor. And at the end of the session, a woman got up and asked Billy about her favorite song, Lullaby. And Joel started by explaining that it sprung from a question his little girl asked him, a hard question. All right, so I had this, 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 uh, this melody. Which is how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew. You go into the rest of their lives. They, they take them with you. So, uh, but also this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing like daddy you're gonna leave me and I said I'll never leave you I'll, I'll ne- I will never leave you I'll never go away I will never never ever leave you so um, it, it was it was a tough answer you know in, in both respects so I'm trying to remember when, when I was right now so he struggles a little bit more and he's actually tearing up you can tell this is a really hard song for him to sing and this is the thing about music in the end and a story and think about this he's he's really trying to solve a problem that's what brings him to this song. So let's go a little bit further down in this masterclass. Here's Billy Joel again. Save these 
these questions for another day I think I know what you've been asking me I think you know what I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave you And you should always know And there you have it, Billy Joel answering his little girl's question with a song. He continues through the second verse, and as he gets through the end, he has a, almost a breakdown. He starts to cry. He starts to pull away from the microphone. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. He never gives this explanation of the song when he's at Madison Square Garden. But here it's just him, a keyboard and a couple of thousand people. Well, he comes back to the keyboards and shares the stunning final verse of this song again for his little girl. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby And in your heart there will always be a part of me. it Billy Joel's song to his little girl that one day she can sing to her little girl the art the craft the labor of work as it relates to the arts and everything else here on our American stories and our special Labor Day edition we go out with Billy Joel's best song ever about work down Easter Alexa Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, a special Labor Day segment, 
And we're bringing you stories about work, about life, what we do every day here. And one of our favorite subjects, aside from arts and music, is sports. And this particular story about a man at work at his craft, and that craft being baseball, this story is told by one of baseball's greats. And the storyteller is none other than George Will, the Washington Post columnist. Let's take a listen to this story about one of the great baseball players of all time who recently passed away. A high drive, that's trouble. And Yogi Berra, belt run, high over the screen and into Bedford Avenue. They know where Phillips over. 90% of this game is half another. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. It's deja vu all over again. Eighteen-year-old U.S. Navy enlistee, thinking it sounded less boring than the dull training he was doing in 1944, volunteered for service on what he thought an officer had called rocket ships. Actually, they were small, slow, vulnerable boats used as launching pads for rockets to give close-in support for troops assaulting beaches. The service on those boats certainly was not boring. At dawn on June 6, 1944, that sailor was a few hundred yards off Omaha Beach. Lawrence Peter Barra, who died recently at 90, had a knack for being where the action was. When he stood, as a catcher, he spent a lot of time crouching at baseball's most physically and mentally demanding position, five foot seven inches, He confirmed the axiom that the beauty of baseball is that a player does not need to be seven feet tall or seven feet wide. Barra swings, and that one's going to leave the ballpark. Well, what do you know? Larry Barra, they call him Yogi, his very first time at the plate in the major leagues against the A's. And what does he do? He hits a home run. The shortstop during Yogi's first Yankee years was an even smaller Italian-American. 150-pound Phil Rizzuto listed at a generous five feet six. Yogi had, as sports writer Alan Barra says in his book, Yogi Barra, Eternal Yankee, the winningest career in the history of American sports. Hall of Famer, catcher, Yogi Barra. He played on Yankee teams that went to the World Series 14 times in 17 years. He won 10 World Series rings. No other player has more than nine. He won three MVP awards. Only Barry Bonds has more with seven, but four of them probably tainted by performance-enhancing drugs. Ripped into right field. It's a one-run game as Bonds gets his second of the series. That's the furthest ball I've ever seen hit. In seven consecutive seasons, 1950 through 1956, Yogi finished in the top four in MVP voting. He grew up in what he and others called the Dago Hill section of St. Louis, when the Italian-Americans who lived there did not take offense at the name. They had bigger problems. Biographer Alan Barra notes that in 1895 advertisement seeking labor to build a New York reservoir, the ad said whites would be paid $1.30 to $1.50 a day, colored workers $1.25 to $1.40, and Italians $1.15 to $1.25. 
the term WAP may have begun as an acronym for the phrase without papers, as many Italians were when they arrived at Ellis Island. American sports and ethnicity have been interestingly entangled. The name Fighting Irish was originally a disparagement by opponents of Notre Dame, which for many years had problems filling its football schedule because of anti-Catholic bigotry. But sports also have been solvents of a sense of apartness felt by ethnic groups. In 1923, the Sporting News, which for many decades was described as the Bible of baseball, except by baseball fans who described the Bible as the Sporting News of religion, called the national pastime the essence of the nation. Quote, in a democratic, Catholic, real American game like baseball, there has been no distinction raised except tacit understanding that a player of Ethiopian descent is ineligible. The Mick, the Sheeny, the Wop, the Dutch and the Chink, the Cuban, the Indian, the Jap, or the so-called Anglo-Saxon, his nationality is never a matter of moment if he can pitch, hit, or field. Ah, diversity. In 1908, the Sporting News said this about a Giants rookie, Charlie Buck Herzog. Quote, The long-nosed rooters are crazy whenever young Herzog does anything noteworthy. Cries of Herzog, Herzog, Hoot Poi, Herzog, go up regularly. And there would be no let up even if a million ham sandwiches suddenly fell among these believers in percentages and bargains. David Moranis, in his biography of the Pirates' Roberto Clemente, the first Puerto Rican superstar, notes that as late as 1971, Clemente's 17th season, one sports writer still quoted him in phonetic English. Quote, if I have my good arm, the ball gets there a little quicker. In 1962, Alvin Dark, manager of the San Francisco Giants, banned the speaking of Spanish in the clubhouse. Today, with three of the most common surnames in baseball being Martinez, Rodriguez, and Gonzalez, some managers speak Spanish. Yogi's great contemporary, the Dodgers catcher Roy Campanella, another three-time MVP, was the son of an African-American mother and Italian-American father. Today, with two Italian-Americans on the Supreme Court, it is difficult to imagine how delighted Italian-Americans were with their first national celebrity, the elegant center fielder on baseball's most glamorous team, Joe DiMaggio, the son of a San Francisco fisherman. DiMaggio was Big Dago to his teammates. Yogi was Little Dago and became the nation's most beloved sports figure. As Yogi said when Catholic Dublin elected a Jewish mayor, only in America. Only in America, and George Will writes about the national pastime like nobody else, and it is always men at work. Heck, it was the name of one of his books about baseball. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our special Labor Day edition continues after these messages. American Stories, and this is our special Labor Day segment where we talk about work and the careers of, well, ordinary Americans and extraordinary Americans. And in this particular case, 
It's a life of a comic you all know and what a life it was. And in this particular piece, we dug into all the life of a working comic, beginning, middle, and end. And this one is Steve Martin. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small. Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard pop charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking. Well, not too many people smoking out there tonight. That's pretty good. Kind of bothers some people. If you're in a sleazy place like this and people start smoking, you know, it doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant though, and I'm eating and someone says, hey, mind if I smoke? I always say, oh, no, do you mind if I fart? <laughs> it's one of my habits. Yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. I quit once for a year, you know. But I gained a lot of weight. It's hard to quit. Um, you know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're going to say and you're standing there going, uh, gee, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well, it must not have been very important or you wouldn't have forgot it. Uh, <laughs> I always say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. Shake. Okay. We're moving now, eh, folks? <laughs> yes, this is comedy. Right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. You know, the fun part of smoking is deciding what brand to smoke. Now, Virginia Slim, that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, here's another funny clip from that same album where Steve talks about how mad he is at his 102-year-old mother. I'm so mad at my mother. I don't know. She's 102 years old. She called me up the other day. She wanted to borrow $10 for some food. I said, hey, I work for a living. So I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she calls me up and says she can't pay me back for a while. I said, what is it? So I worked it out with her. I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> and if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic. <laughs> Oh, and every once in a while on Our American Stories, we want to just dig into a comic's life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life 
his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip, we hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius, read by Martin himself from his own audiobook. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And now, let's repeat the nonconformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. I did stand-up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand-up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future. The mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, while the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying, and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery, depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the 70s, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, my memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows, where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is, I murdered them, which I'm sure came about because you finally realize that the audience is capable of murdering you. <laughs> Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances. Comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic, I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away. Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's Get Small, and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo. 
happy sound. You're just... You just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo. You just can't go, Oh, death and grief and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay. Hey, Steve, your house is burning down. I always thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon, you know. <laughs> he went on television right at the right time, went, Hi, everything's great! <laughs> well, he was, I think it'd be great if he had been traveling around the country and got off the plane and said, I'd like to talk about politics, but first a little Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> go to foreign countries and they get off the plane and people go, hey, do Foggy Mountain. <laughs> and the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo. <laughs> and they can go home and, did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't matter, though. And there you have it. And my goodness, him talking about, Martin talking about why he left the business Tells you a lot about the work of being a stand-up. And my goodness, does it sound like dangerous work or what? Being alone all that time, all that mortal dread, the darkness, that audience, the fickleness of it. Terrific stuff. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. Special Labor Day segment. The work of a stand-up comic, an athlete, cops, musicians, so much more. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, special Labor Day segment, and we love talking about music on Our American Stories and the work of music. And one of our favorite segments this year involved The Doors keyboardist Ray Manzarek talking about how the iconic song that you're listening to right now, Light My Fire, got made. Robbie Krieger is actually the writer of Light My Fire. So the way we would work on songs is somebody would bring a song in and then everyone would go to work on it. It would be like little bees just or little things spinning and working and weaving. So Robbie came in with a song. He said, I got a new song called Light My Fire, the first song Robbie Krieger ever wrote. What a genius he is. He's just the greatest guy, great guitar player and great songwriter. I've got a song called Light My Fire. So he plays the song for us. And it's kind of a Sonny and Cher kind of dun, 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 light my fire. And it's like, uh, okay, okay, good chord change. What are the chord changes there? And he shows me an A minor to an F sharp minor. And that's like, whoa, that's hip. 
that's cool. And then, and that's when he went into the Sonny and Cher part. <laughs> No, 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 no. We're not going to do a Sonny and Cher kind of song here, man. And that was popular at the time. It was popular at the time, by the way. But Jim Morrison doesn't do Sonny and Cher. Manzarek tells us how the drummer, John Densmore, influenced the song by introducing a Latin beat while Morrison helped complete the haunting lyrics. Densmore says, look, we got to do a Latin kind of beat here. Let's do something in kind of a Latin groove. I'm doing this left hand line. So John's doing and and we set up this Latin groove and then go into a hard rock four. And Robbie's only got a, a one verse. He needs a second verse. And Morrison says, okay, let me think about it for a second. And Jim comes up with the, uh, with the classic line, and our love becomes a funeral pyre. You know, you know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I were to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher as Robbie's. And Jim comes, the time to hesitate is through. In other words, seize the moment, seize the spiritual LSD moment. The time to hesitate is through. No time to wallow in the mire. Try now. We can only lose. Whoa, that's kind of heavy. Try now. We can only lose, meaning the worst thing that can happen to you is death. And our love becomes a funeral pyre. Our love is consumed in the fires of agony. And it's like, God, Jim, what a great, great verse, man. Yep. Manzara goes on to show us how the piano rhythm in this song is lifted from another source, John Coltrane's My Favorite Things. So we've got verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and then it's time for solo. So anyway, the verse, the verse goes, time to hit and do dead. You know how that goes. You've heard it a million times. And then into the chorus, come on, baby, light my fire. So uh, it's time then for some solos. We've done a verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Now what do we do? We've got to play some solos. We've got to stretch out. Here's where John Coltrane comes in. Here's where the door is jazz background. John's a jazz drummer. I'm a jazz piano player. Robbie's a flamenco guitar player. And we all said, you know, we're in A minor. Let's see. What do we do? Da, 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 da. It, it, it ends up on an E. So how about... My favorite things, John Coltrane. It's my favorite things, except Coltrane's doing it in D minor. But the left hand is exactly the same thing. It's in three. One, two, three, one, two, three. A minor, uh, uh, the doors light my fire, is in four. We're going from A minor to B minor. Mantara continues his breakdown of Light My Fire, describing how the solos are layered over the rhythm and how the song circles back to its own beginning. So it's the same thing as... And that's how the solo comes about. And then we just go... So it's John Coltrane's My Favorite Things... And uh, Coltrane's Olay Coltrane. And then uh, that's the chord structure. Then I would solo over it. 
Robbie would solo over it. And at the end of our two solos, we'd go into a a three against four. And I'm keeping the left hand going exactly as it goes. That hasn't changed. That's the four. On top of it is three. The turnaround. And we're back at verse 1 and verse 2. And we're back into our Latin groove. So it's basically a jazz structure. It's verse, chorus, verse, chorus. State the theme. Take a long solo. Come back to stating the theme again. And that's how Light My Fire came about. And by the way, when I listen to a lot of young bands messing around in the studio, and I know they don't know any of this, I tell them to go practice and listen and then pick up a, an instrument again because so many young bands don't know any of this, and they actually can't even move from A minor to major chord. They don't even know chords. They just don't know anything. That was one of the points Billy Joel made in his, in his lesson on musicianship. And my goodness, this is mastery, and t- it turns into something very simple in this, in this very complicated piece of work, actually, by the, by the Doors. And here's Manzarek talking about how the final thing left to do was to write that famous introduction to the song. You gotta hook him. He says Bach was the inspiration. The only thing left to do was to come up with that little turnaround thing. I hadn't had that yet. And we said, now how do we start the song? Do we just jump on an A minor to an F sharp? We, you know, going to do that, so vamp a little bit? I said, no, 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 we need something more. than We can't just vamp a little bit. And I started this, I put my Bach Bach back to work, put my Bach hat on and came up with a circle of fifths. So I started like this. Like a Bach thing, like. So same kind of thing. B flat, I'm on, so I'm in G, D, F, up to B flat, E flat, A flat, to the A, to A major, A major, yeah, that's it, and then we'll go to the A minor, I'm thinking all this to myself, so that's how the introduction came about, F, B flat, E flat, A flat, A and the drums and everything. Jim comes in singing. And the Latin-esque, and then into hard rock. So that's how Light My Fire goes. That's the creation of Light My Fire. That's just fantastic. Ray Manzarek played the song's bass line with his left hand on a Fender Rhodes piano bass while performing the other keyboard parts on a Vox Continental using his right hand. The single was certified gold by the RIAA in 67 for one million units shipped. Rolling Stone ranks it as number 35 on the all-time top 500 songs. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the making of Light My Fire. Let's take a listen. (laughs) 
And of course, Jose Feliciano, because of those Latin beats, was able to turn it into a number one song all over again with his iconic recording and interpretation. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our special Labor Day segment on music and our special Labor Day session with you. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. Mm-hmm, the time for hesitations through. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our special Labor Day edition. And in this particular segment, we're going to talk about one of the world's greatest animators, Chuck Jones. And we had done a long story on him earlier in the year, and it's a remarkable story. He had a very abusive dad, but his dad was a salesman, and his dad had a lot of paper around the house. And this allowed Chuck, who didn't have much money, to be able to dabble and write on the back of that paper. So though he had an abusive dad, his dad served a real purpose. His dad did one other thing for him in his life. He yanked him from regular school and sent him to art school. And we pick up the story from there. Chuck was coming out of art school right in 1931, in the worst of the Great Depression. Chuck said, quote, to expect to get a job when three out of every ten people were unemployed was ridiculous, particularly for a kid without any experience in anything. I had worked my way through art school by being a janitor, but I never worked full-time as a janitor, and I wasn't sure I was capable. I was certainly willing. And to the willing came the treasure. Someone offered to pay him to do his, well, to do his thing and draw. He told the Academy of Achievement that he couldn't believe it. I was still astonished that somebody would offer me a job and pay me to do what I wanted to do. And to this day, that's been the astonishment of my life and delight of my life and the wonder of my life and the puzzlement that anybody would be so stupid as to willing to do that. (laughs) Talk about humility. Jones, humble and focused. So focused that years later, when he was offered an opportunity to be the boss, a studio bigwig, he said no. He told the Academy of Achievement that he wasn't going to trade his tools, his passion, for a big desk and more money. And I hear all these success stories of people, you know, the, these, these captains of industry and so on, these forgers of, of the world and empire builders and so on. And, and they talk about, you know, all the money they made and, you know, become presidents and all that. And I thought, geez, but, but look at me. I, I, I never, when I was offered a chance to be head of studios, I wouldn't take it. I like to work with the tools of my trade. And the tools of my trade is a lot of paper and a pencil. And that's all it is. A lot of paper and a pencil. That's all it is. And luckily for Chuck, he had the kind of parents who just let him be. Let him do it. He'd say that right now to a parent. I want to, I want to draw. Oh, good luck with that. Good luck with that. And let's hear a little bit more. Let's hear, uh, let's hear Elmer, Daffy, and Bugs. Now it's duck hunting season. That, sir, is an investigated fabrication. It's wabbit season. Duck season. Wabbit season. Duck season. Wabbit season. Duck 
season. Rabbit season. Rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. I say it's duck season, and I say fire. Try that again. Okay, I'll start it this time. <laughs> right. Wabbit season. Duck season. Wabbit season. Wabbit season. Duck season. Fire. <laughs> and we know it goes backwards. <laughs> as Bill goes backwards, and we know we don't even have to see it. We've seen it a hundred times. And it doesn't matter how many times you watch it or hear it, you still laugh. It's still funny. It's still funny. And it is still funny. And next up, uh, another great story about work and uh, the intellect is Antonin Scalia's life story. And we spent a lot of time on his development, his mind, his intellect, his legal prowess. But nothing struck us more than a talk he gave at the Lanier School of Theology where the question was, is socialism or capitalism more in comportment with Christianity? And here you see the real work of Antonin Scalia at work. It is hard to understand that attraction. Surely it does not rest upon the teachings of experience. I know of no country in which the churches have grown fuller as the governments have moved leftward. The churches of Europe are empty. The most religious country in the West, by all standards, belief in God, church membership, church attendance, is that bastion of capitalism least diluted by socialism, the United States. Here is Scalia boiling the issue down to its starkest and clearest terms. The issue is not whether there should be provision for the poor, but rather the degree to which that provision should be made through the coercive power of the state. Christ said, after all, that you should give your goods to the poor, not that you should force someone else to give his. Scalia wasn't finished. Christ did not preach a chicken in every pot or the elimination of poverty in our time. Those are worldly governmental goals. If they were his objectives, he certainly devoted little of his time and talent to achieving them. Feeding the hungry multitudes only a couple of times, as I recall. And running away from the crowds who wanted to put him on the throne, where he would have had an opportunity to engage in some real redistribution of wealth. His message was not the need to eliminate hunger, or misery, or misfortune but rather the need for each individual to love and help the hungry, the miserable, and the unfortunate. To the extent that state takes upon itself one of the corporal works of mercy that could and would have been undertaken privately, it deprives individuals of an opportunity for sanctification and deprives the body of Christ of an occasion for the interchange of love among its members. And this is what drew so many of us, though we didn't know it, to Scalia. Why he loved the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Because, well, it was the people that he thought could be interfered with by their own government. Here's how Scalia closed out this remarkable speech. 
When I was young, there, there, there used to be an expression applied to a lazy person. My parents used it a lot. He thinks the, he thinks the world owes him a living. But the teaching of welfare socialism is that the world does indeed owe everyone a living. This belief must affect the character of welfare recipients, and not, I suggest, for the better, or at least not for the better in the distinctively Christian view of things. Christ's special love for the poor was attributable to one quality that they possessed in abundance, meekness, and humility. It is humbling to be an object of charity, which is why mendicant nuns and friars used to beg. The transformation of charity into legal entitlement has produced donors without love and recipients without gratitude. And there you have it, and the mind of Scalia, which propelled him to international fame as a jurist and his life's work as a judge. And last but not least, we wanted to spend some time on the life's work of Johnny Carson. What made him great? Why did he pull down ratings that no one had ever seen before? We had comic upon comic on talking about Johnny's generosity, about how he always wanted the young comics to do better than him. And then there was this, and here is Jay Leno to talk about it. You never knew Johnny's politics. Johnny would come out and equally make fun of everybody and never questioned anybody's patriotism. It was always about what they said or did. President Ford is considering an income tax cut for people in lower tax brackets. That's, that's the good news. Now, the bad news is he still hasn't figured out how they can get an income. <laughs> Finally, some good political news. Bill Clinton has laryngitis, lost his voice. <laughs> and I do have a late-breaking news bulletin for you. World War III was just declared. No, no, I'm, I'm just kidding, of course, not really. <laughs> I just wanted to get Reagan out of bed to watch the monologue. <laughs> you know, in order to avoid looking partisan, Carson would avoid, well, almost any invitations from any big political figures. Hillary and Bill, he declined the invitation. He also had said once, I was photographed at the White House with Hubert Humphrey, and I'm sorry I did that. What was obvious then and is even more obvious now is that Carson's unwillingness to allow his personal politics to insult his audience is the kind of old-school showbiz class that's all but extinct today. Here's Johnny on that very subject. I think one of the dangers, if you are a comedian, which basically I am, if you start to take yourself too seriously um, and start to comment on social issues, your sense of humor suffers somewhere. Uh, I try not to, uh, and we've had some criticism on the show. Some critics over the years says, well, the show has no great sociological value. It's not controversial. It's not deep. The Tonight Show basically is um, to amuse people, to make them laugh. What an idea, to amuse people and make them laugh. And Johnny Carson's life's work is still remembered and still revered. And this is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories, our special Labor Day segment, and we cover every kind of story here in Our American Stories, and we urge you to go to ouramericannetwork.org. Go particularly to our This Day in History. We do one every day. 
I think we've got 125 up there, from the life of Henry Ford to Will Chamberlain's 100-point game and everything in between. Have a great, great Labor Day weekend. as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you heard the call at the Indy 500 in 1969. And the man we're about to talk to in our American Dreamers series won that race, and it's quite a life story. And, of course, it's the story of Mario Andretti. Now, you know he's won the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championships, Pikes Peaks, Hill Climb, and, my goodness, a racing icon would be, well, just selling him short. And joining us to talk for the hour in our American Dreamer series, Mario Andretti. Let's start where we always like to start all of our interviews in the beginning, tell us about where you were born, and tell us a little bit about your parents. Well, I was born in Italy, um, and the region is uh, Istria, and however now it's uh, Croatia. And there's uh, the story. Obviously, it's one of the reasons why uh, the family immigrated to the states, because um, I was born in 1940, at the beginning of uh, World War Two, and. Uh, uh, that region was uh, under Italy, uh, as it had been, but uh, after the war, uh, Italy lost the war, so they lost territory, and that's the territory they lost. Uh, and uh, uh, Yugoslavia occupied the region under hardline communism, under Marshal Tito, and uh, there was a choice for all of uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area to... Uh, succumb to communism or to maintain the Italian citizenship uh, uh, to uh, leave home and uh, become um, refugees basically uh, back in mainland Italy and uh, and my family chose that you know the latter part uh, uh, to uh, maintain the uh, Italian uh, citizenship and uh, we were refugees uh, in the city of Lucca in Tuscany for seven and a half years uh, before uh, my dad had uh, the opportunity to um, to come to America. We had uh, relatives uh, on my mother's side living in uh, America here, in, in fact, in Nazareth, where I live now. And um, and this, it was suggested that why don't you come here? Uh, we would. Uh, guarantee um, that you have a home, you know, and that's what they had to do to in order to, to obtain visas. Uh, 
and that's the story. And what did your dad do, Mario, there uh, in, in Italy? What did he do for a living? And what was it like for you as kids? I mean, you went from having a home to living through war-torn Europe to now living in what I guess you could just call a, a camp. Almost, a, it sounds like a not a prison camp because it wasn't, but a refugee camp couldn't have been that, that plush. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was nothing normal about what happened to us, obviously. Uh, and uh, But uh, credit to my father. First of all, uh, the first part of the question, my dad uh, uh, was administrator of uh, land holdings from the family uh, on his... Uh, on his mother's side, because he lost his um, his parents at age two and four, respectively, and he was raised by uh, a priest, the uncle priest, and but the family on that side owned uh, about two thousand acres of land, about twenty one hundred acres, and uh, seven tenants. And my dad was the administrator of that of those holdings. Then basically, he was a farmer and. Um, so he had no other skills, you know, when we, um, uh, when he moved on. And uh, that was a difficult part, obviously, uh, to be able to obtain uh, a professional job of some kind. And, uh, and when we were, while we were on the camp, as you said, I mean, uh, conditions were very, very basic. But, uh, again, my dad always provided for us. Uh, we were always... Uh, dressed properly and uh, went to school and uh, never cold and uh, never hungry. You know, he always took took care of the family. Uh, that's, that's a very proud man, and that's something that I've always looked up to be, to him because of uh, of that. He had uh, he maintained that responsibility in the best possible way. And he never quit, Mario. It sounds like he never quit on you, his family, despite the, the toughest circumstances. So you're living in Italy... Uh, and you you see uh, an auto race, and there's one particular man that that moves you to think about, or at least dream about, uh, automobiles and car racing. Who is that man? What was that race in Italy? Well, the race was uh, the uh, Italian Grand Prix in 1954, and uh, the man was my idol. He became my idol it was Alberto Ascari, who was at the time current world champion. Uh, for Ferrari, and as you can imagine, as an Italian driving Ferrari and and being uh, so strong uh, as kids, uh, I be you know I was very impressed by that and taken in all the way. And uh, as an idol, he uh, he just actually helped shape my future. To be honest with you, in my own mind, because between uh, my twin brother Aldo and myself. Uh, from there on, we did not have a plan B. I always say that, and that's a fact. You know, this is something that uh, we wanted to pursue no matter what, had no idea how or when, you know, things were going to happen because there was, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainties in our lives, and uh, even as kids, you could obviously uh, understand that. But um, but the dream never faded. You know, the dream stayed strong, and... Uh, at first opportunity, uh, you know, we pursued it. You know, when we came to the States, two years later, Aldo and I started building a car to race locally. We're going to hold that thought, and when we come back on the other end, this incredible life story, a story that started in Italy, 
that was impacted by political tumult in Europe and ended in a little town in Pennsylvania called Nazareth. The life of Mario Andretti when we come back. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. the world asks anybody, you know, who is, who is the greatest American racing driver, I, I, I think 90%, literally, of the people around the world would say Mario Andretti. You just heard from auto sport writer Gordon Kirby describing the career of Mario Andretti. He's one of the great sports writers on automotive sports. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Dreamers segment. And we continue our conversation with Mario Andretti. You were lucky in this respect. You you come to a place called America and to a small town called Nazareth, not far away is a little dirt track from what I from what I understand, Mario. Right. And you and your twin brother, without your dad, I don't think your dad would have been a big fan of this and wasn't. Uh, talk about what you guys did. What was that first car? By the way, we love just asking people what their first cars were anyway. But what was that first car? And what did you and Aldo do? What was the first race? Talk about both of those things. Well. First of all, the uh, the car that we built was uh, a 1948 Hudson Hornet, which was uh, actually um, a car a car that was uh, brand that was very successful in NASCAR racing, and that was uh, not popular that car here at this local level, but uh, but we chose that you know with the help of some other you know couple other friends uh, which you always have the scientist somewhere that does the thinking <laughs> yep. and uh and we followed that advice and um and we built that car and and uh but uh we didn't dare tell my dad because there were so many things uh here um you know he knew that we were following motor racing and um and we were all in and as kids, however, okay, all right, the kids are impressed by something. And uh, then Alberto Scotti is killed in, in, in the following year, 1955. Uh, on the way over on the ship, Conte Biancamano, uh, during the time that the 24 Hours of Le Mans was running, that's the time when uh, a Mercedes um, uh, went into the crowd and killed 85 people. So, so many negatives about the sport, always, you know, just fatalities here and there. Well, you know, my dad was certainly not a race fan of any kind. He never pursued, but uh, the only news that he was ever, uh, you know, that was ever coming his way was negative. So, uh, seeing for us kids, you know, to even when we would hint about racing, he said, oh, you kids are crazy, don't even think about it type of thing. So... Uh, he certainly did not in any way understand how strong we uh, believed in it and how strong, you know, how the passion that we already had developed. So anyway, we started building this car and I didn't dare tell him, you know, uh, anything about it. And, um, and this was in 1957, two years after we arrived here. And, um, and in 1959, I took 
we figure uh, it will take us four years to build this car, you know, to get all the money together and everything, uh, because you had to be 21 to race legally in those days, race professionally. Uh, and uh, so we figured we got time, but the car was finished uh, two years later in 1959. We were only 19. And we figured, you know what, we're not going to look at this car for two years before we race it. So uh, we had, uh, we fudged the uh, birth date on the licenses and uh, keep saying, you know, which is a fact in those days, obviously there was no computer, so yep, you know, yep. it was easy to get by with that. And uh, we started racing at age 19 without my dad knowing and the only defense that we had on that uh, or the buffer that we had there was the uh, language barrier you know because my dad obviously did not learn the language um, as quickly as we did uh, <laughs> so uh, you, you know you, things because we were winning races and uh, you know even uh, you know I keep saying this uh, which is a fact and uh, it at work, you know, his boss used to, you know, try to tell him, oh, your kids are really doing well. They just want to, he didn't understand. He thought right. that the boss was t- telling him how good he was at his job. So, um, again, it wasn't until the end of the season at the very last race, an invitational race, that uh, Aldo uh, almost killed, you know, was almost killed in that race. He had a bad accident, which, uh, you know, we had a... Um, Actually, uh, fracture skull and all that. So he was in a coma for you know for a long time, and uh, he was even given his last rites at that time. And my dad didn't even know it, but he, that's how he found out. And he almost felt vindicated. You know, see, I told you guys. You know, type of thing. <laughs> yep, yep. And by the way, we we recall we we spent about an hour just uh, talking about your story. And Aldo had said it. He was sure glad you had to tell him you guys yeah, were racing. I know, it, uh, when Aldo finally came around weeks later, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, took him a while after he opened his eyes and so forth. You know, it took him a while to actually speak. The first sentence that he said, he says to me, he says, "I'm sure, you, I'm sure glad you had to be the one to face the old man." <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, we got him back. <laughs> uh, so your you, your career, your your brother was racing, uh, but you you stuck with it all the way. I want to talk to you about your mentors in this world of racing. Most business people have mentors, and I think athletes have coaches, mentors who bring them along. Who were who were key people in your life, Mario, who who allowed you to think you could do what you did, and who really made it happen for you? Your well, team. I mean, there was uh, there were several people that believed, you know, uh, could see. Uh, the burning passion that uh, I had. And, uh, uh, you know, after this uh, stock, I didn't want to make a career out of, you know, local stock cars. I wanted to get into single-seaters. And uh, and my one of the first ones that actually helped was uh, my uh, now my wife, my wife's father uh, and, uh, and his partner. They, you know, I needed to buy a midget. A midget uh, car, a single seater to 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 run a three quarter midget to run indoor races in the winter, and that's where a lot of the owners will scout drivers, you know, for the full size midgets for the regular season. And uh, and I was I bought a uh, a famous car, and I made a deal with uh, with Earl uh, Earl Hoke. It was uh, you know my uh, that's Hoke is my 
my wife's maiden name, and uh, and they invested in that car, and that's what got me going. It was another plateau, a launching pad, if you will, because uh, I won some races. I was competitive, and uh, I got noticed, and I got a, a really good ride uh, with the Mateka brothers in uh, Midget, which were running the ARDC Club, American Race Drivers Club, uh, which was a very prominent midget uh, series uh, with all the icons of midget racing, you know, the Len Duncans, Tony Bonadier, some of the icons of midget racing is of the era. And uh, and that, you know, then I started winning there. And this is a team that had never won any races, but I started winning for them. And then... Uh, uh, a, a team out of Indianapolis, uh, a, a Rufus Gray team, uh, he, a Rufus Gray the individual, actually he owned a sprint car, and he had uh, a sprint car where he had some of the top names like Judd Larson driving for him and, and USAC sprint cars. He took notice, and they obviously they all knew that I was interested in progressing. And he gave me a ride, and he became, you know, uh sort of the mentor at the time, which brought me into, uh, uh, I would say, mainstream of IndyCar racing because even though it was not the top category, sprint cars is a step below the championship cars, uh, but I was driving against the top drivers because they were uh, migrating into sprint cars like A.J. Foyt, Roger McCluskey, Don mm-hmm. Branson, all the top drivers would be driving this Parnelli Jones driving in these uh, sprint cars, and I would be driving against them. And all of a sudden, I was started winning there. And uh, so, uh, but it was always, you know, like I said, certain individuals that just made the difference. And uh, and I seized the opportunity at the time. And quite honestly, uh, sometimes you, you get it right because uh, the main driver is hurt. Yep. In those days, it was very popular. And that's how it was really happening. A lot of it was happening with me. Uh, but um, once I took over, you know, it seemed like uh, I held my own and and uh, and earned my, my way, you know, uh, into a solid ride. So, uh, again, it was just uh, everything was by chance. You know, there was no guarantees anywhere. You had... Uh, uh, you could have all the plans in the world, but you had no way of uh, realizing or uh, trying to predict what was going to happen anywhere. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity, and that's really the way it worked out for me. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity, and that's what so many greats and so many people who, quote, get lucky or, quote, have opportunity, they're just there. And you're there often enough, and some pretty remarkable things can happen in your life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Dreamers series with Mario Andretti continues after these words from our sponsors.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return with our conversation with Mario Andretti. And we focus in on the family and the importance of family. I want to talk about your wife because she played such an important part, Mario, and particularly in the early days where she was in some ways helping support the entire project. And how does a guy do this without a strong family background? It's got to be hard. Yeah, I mean, uh, i tell you what, you have no idea uh, the important role uh, that she played, um, you know, in, in my career and, and, uh, and, and indirectly encouraging me and backing me up because uh, you know the uh, uh, you know even as an individual uh, she I knew that she would take care of like you know we got married I got married young and then the career was going I had kids and I didn't have a steady job I was relying on uh, you know just what I could earn racing which uh, you know <laughs> it can be yep. <laughs> it can be pretty sketchy sometimes <laughs> right. but but it worked, and, and she worked. You know, like even to give you an idea, when, um, uh, when 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 I was driving, you know, when I was maintaining the uh, three-quarter midget that uh, her dad had financed, she was working, and uh, she was pregnant, and uh, on her way to one of the races, uh, she she's just like sobbing a little bit. You know, I said, "What's what's the matter?" The end. She said. I just quit my job. I said, you did what? Are you, is she, she was seven months pregnant. <laughs> I said, you did what? How dare you? I said, how am I going to get this? Because I had to keep getting a fresh engine in there so they wouldn't smoke on the indoors. <laughs> I said, how am I going to pay for the engine? I said, you know, to keep freshening it up. She said, oh, no, this and that. So <laughs> as you can see, she was paying for me freshening up the engines <laughs> from week to week. You know, at Bob's motorcycle shop, you know, <laughs> so, and things like that. But uh, you know, we laugh about it, obviously. You know, but uh, she was a rock behind me throughout. You know, and uh, uh, and and again, you know, she she was never a race fan. She's not a race fan today. But uh, uh, what the heck? I mean, uh, she she had no choice. I guess uh, you know and. She knew that this was our path, and uh, even with the kids, uh, and uh, she just uh, always made the best of it, you know. But um, uh, she carried the burden, you know, the family, make sure everything is running smoothly, and and uh, and at the same time supporting me by just, you know, just just doing her thing, you know, being behind, and uh, uh, it was never like what, what I liked. It was the stability that she created because. Uh, uh, she always very in check with her emotions, you know, and um, and it was never like uh, you know ticker tape parade. If I brought home a trophy or uh, you know like a, a black stripe on her arm, if I didn't, you know, it was right. always, everything was even. You know, the hug when I came home with trophy or not was always the same. So that was really uh, that was uh, what I needed. Well, lucky I'm, you, lucky you, Mario. Is all and every man listening to this can say is lucky you. Yeah, um, for sure. And no doubt. And, and you know, your wife had to live through what was then a, a very dangerous sport. So it wasn't only that the income was sketchy in the beginning, like an actor or a minor league ball player. But, my goodness, those guys can't die every time they get in a car. So your wife had to deal with the, the risks that you had to deal with as well. Talk about uh, that, the burden that imposed. Also, Mario, that kind of risk in your own life, because we're going to talk a little about risk. And you, you are, you're a person who puts risk into the calculus uh, like anybody who does what you do and did for a living. 
Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the, the, the danger aspect, you know, was uh, looming, was always there because uh, uh, obviously the sport, um, you know, in the 60s, 70s, you know, was certainly not as, uh, especially in the 60s, uh, uh, not as safe as it is today. And, uh, and yes, uh, we, we lost a lot of friends. I mean, uh, obviously uh, she made, uh, she was friendly with many of the wives of my buddies, and and then uh, you know my best friend when uh, Billy Foster when he when he was killed, and uh, Judd Larson, and on and on. I mean, we lost so many. Uh, Ronnie Peterson. I mean, she was uh, obviously always the one that uh, thinking. You know, when is is he going to come home? You know, this uh, uh, after this race. So uh, the spectrum of of that was always there. And it was real. Uh, there was, we were losing way too many, you know, and unfortunately, and um, and and I'm sure that, that that was always, you know, anxious moments for her as well. Uh, me as a driver, I never, you know, never dwell on that side, obviously. Uh, so I was pretty serene, but uh, but her, I could see that side of of, of her just dealing with this uncertainty. Um, you know, all the time, every week, uh, had to be a, a you know tough moments, and, uh, and 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 again, you know, just uh, 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 you could tell they were, you know, I only began to understand really what she was going through when I came out of the cockpit officially, you know, uh, because you know now watching you know my kids run and, and my grandson and so forth. Uh, all of a sudden, I have uh, you know different anxieties you know yep. that I ever experienced by driving uh, by being active myself. Yep, I think most coaches know this when, or, or most athletes when they're playing, it's one thing. Then they watch their kids play, and it's like, oh, that's what my father was going through. Now yeah. I now there I get it. There you go. Now yeah. I get it. You know, Mario, let, let's talk a little about the accolades, and we're not going to spend too much time on the actual racing because I think what people know those things, what they don't know is the man behind the, the legend and the life behind it, and that's what we do here on this series. You obviously were named Driver of the Year in three different decades. Remarkable. Driver of the Quarter Century and, of course, Driver of the Century in January of 2000. And, and Mario, you did this across every style of racing that there is. Talk about, what, if you could, the three most important victories in your life, the ones that, uh, that meant the most to you uh, and, to, and to your family. Well, I mean, to me, uh, probably the victory that uh, stands out the most on a personal level is uh, winning the Italian Grand Prix, um, because that's where I saw my very first, uh, you know, international big big time race, and that's where my dream really began uh, or solidified. And uh, and here we go, you know, I win. In that place, and then uh, I also clinched the world championship there in Monza. You know, so uh, that has you know personally that nothing comes close to that. Uh, the others are obviously there. Are many races, they're very. Every race has got its own uh, shining star, if you know what I mean. It's just, uh, but uh, when you look at the classics, those are the ones that uh, you're judged by, like uh, winning Indianapolis or or, uh, or winning Daytona type of thing, you know, because uh, 
again, those are the crown jewels of uh, the, the different series. Uh, so, you know, everybody would focus on that. I mean, there were there were others. For me, uh, uh, from a personal level, however, you know, here I go. I go fourth is uh, uh, winning over my son Michael on Father's Day in Portland, 1986, <laughs> you know, and yep. uh, beating him by seven one-thousandths of a second, you know, that type of thing. You know? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? And, and uh, when I look back and uh, how many times um, uh, Michael and I started on pole or how many times we were on podium together while we were even teammates, you know, those are incredible moments in my life, you know, when uh, um, uh, bright moments. Uh, when I look back, I said, we could have never designed that, you know, but it did happen. You know, how fortunate are we? How blessed we are. And blessed indeed, how blessed we were to watch, if you're old enough to have watched Mario Andretti race, and how lucky we all are, how lucky he was to have a bride like he had always there with him. When we come back, some of our final thoughts with an American legend, part of our American Dreamers series. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. More from Mario Andretti after these messages. was one of those drivers he was one of the bars that that uh, that people would compare themselves to I mean for sure when I started driving you know if I could if I could keep up with Mario or if I could keep up with my dad I'm doing good and if I beat them then I did great this is Lee Habib and this is our American stories and you just heard from Al Unser Jr talking about how Mario Andretti set the bar in auto racing, and few figures in sports ever do that. And where we left off last segment was talking about the importance of Mario's wife, but ultimately this becomes a father-son affair. And, you know, as we learn, you can't force Mario, your sons, to do anything. Uh, You know that from personal experience with your own dad. You must have been really heartened when your own son and your own sons chose to follow you in this really risky but really exhilarating profession. Oh, indeed, yes, because uh, uh, that was their choosing. You know, it's uh, something that I feel I made abundantly clear that, uh, you know, if you're going to pursue this, um, I said, don't do it just because you think that I may, you know, I, I may like you to do it or uh, or any any of us. Uh, I said, just got to do it for yourself. If that's really what you want to do, I said, but do it for yourself, for your own satisfaction. And uh, and then, you know, when they make their choice, ultimately, uh, then you figure, you know, it's just like what no bigger satisfaction than having uh, your own kids pursue on a business, you know, something, you know, on your own business, you know, like if you own a business, yep. you know, they pursue and, and they cultivate it and uh, make a career of it themselves. And this is a business. I mean, a lot of people don't know the, the amount of money that goes into the preparation of the car, the amount of people that are employed by the crew, uh, the sponsors. The, this is, there are a lot of jobs on the line, uh, Mario. Talk about the business of this business, because it's not just like you're some celebrity jumping into a car looking as handsome as you always looked, and that's that. I mean, this is work, Mario. 
Well, I mean, yeah, it's a complex business, no question. I mean, it's a uh, truly a team sport, actually. I mean, uh, as a driver, uh, you have to have a piece of equipment worthy of uh, bringing results. And who can make it that? I mean, uh, then it's got to be a, a lot of people involved, engineers, mechanics, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, again, uh, there's uh, a lot that goes behind the strategies that go behind it. Um, and, um, and again, uh, uh, I, I was always, I only owned a team and drove for myself in one year in 1968. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to move around to different disciplines. I just wanted to drive. But the driver is, is a driver, however, always had, um, input in the team. I wasn't just a contracted driver, okay, drive and shut up, you know, and bring right. us home a trophy. I always was very integrated within the team because um, I wanted to have a say as to my who my engineers was and suggestions, blah, 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 and uh, and to have that type of harmony, you know, within the team. And, and that's the part that actually really worked for me very well. And uh, I draw for some of the, you know, the, the icons in, in our sport over the years in different disciplines, and I was very, very, obviously, this is what gave me the opportunity to bring home some results. You know, it wasn't always uphill for you, too. I mean, there were dry spells, and by the way, athletes experience this, too, Mario. How did you handle that? How did you cope? I mean, when things just aren't firing, so to speak, on all cylinders, how do you keep it together? How do you keep positive, especially with all the expectations? And actually, yeah. probably some people rooting for you to fail. Yeah, no question. I mean, there's, you, you've experienced all that. If you're in it for the long pull, believe me, you're going to have the ups and downs. And, uh, and that, I mean, the, the, when you're down, that's really what tests uh, your, uh, your will, you know, to just pull out of your willpower and uh, your mindset. You know, all of those elements, they're so important because, uh, again, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be always a better roses. When you're at the top, uh, you know darn well that it's not going to last and you fight like crazy, you know, to, uh, to try to maintain the momentum, whatever it is that keeps you there. And then, but uh, when it starts going the other way, you know, uh, you can't dwell on the negative. You got to start, keep searching, keep searching and uh, maintain a positive attitude, you know, to pull out of it. I want to talk to you about class and that income, that is. If you had tried to pursue uh, racing in Europe, uh, as opposed to your, your, I think, good fortune in coming to America and to a place like Nazareth, would a Mario Andretti's career have been less probable in a class system like Europe than a place like America where, really, almost anybody can get anywhere in, in this country? Talk about that. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because uh, quite honestly, if uh, uh, if we would have stayed in Europe, I, I don't see how in the world uh, I could have uh, ever, you know, especially within uh, the uh, the age limit, you know, to take advantage of a career, how I could have got started. So uh, I always say that uh, the negative of what happened. Uh, during the war, the displacement that we experienced as a family and everything was a negative, but it became a huge positive by having the opportunity to come to the United States because uh, I I feel that I'm a true, true example of the American dream. 
uh, I don't see how anything could have happened to me unless we, we came to the States. Even under the environment that my dad had me under, you know, because of his, uh, you know, this farming and so I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I had no, you know, even as a youngster, I just despised that type of thing. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, set the fire in me. And, um, uh, you know, we loved uh, uh, my Uncle Bruno, you know, who was, you know, my mother's brother, you know, who was, uh, you know, he was uh, an aviator in the aviation. He was in, in, he had motorcycles. He had, you know, was that type of a guy, you know. And uh, so there was something that, um, uh, as I say, just if we would have remained there, I probably, uh, I don't know, I probably would have become a plumber or something. Yeah. Now, we love asking folks uh, just a few questions, Mara, just personal ones. Um, your biggest regret, that is, the decision you made that you wish you could have pulled back in your life? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I have any regrets, quite honestly. Um, I, you know... You could always do something better, you mm -hmm. know, by looking at it now, okay, I might have made a better decision uh, at a different time. Uh, I'll give you an example, you know, when um, at the end of, uh, uh, you know, my Formula One career with Lotus, uh, I had a couple of opportunities, one to go either with McLaren or Alfa Romeo, and I went with my heart, you know, I went with Alfa Romeo because, you know, I had a friend. Uh, engineer there and so forth, and I thought Alfa Romeo was was ready to uh, to spring, you know, into the uh, to the top uh, in Formula One, and and instead I and I could have gone with McLaren. I could have probably won another ch world championship with McLaren. So, you know, those are some things you call it a mistake, call yeah. it a miscalculation. Yeah, you could, you know, now that I have a chance to revisit, but overall, Lee, I have no regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever. You know, the, the, the positive way, way overcome the negatives. Uh, and so I, again, no regrets. That's great. What gives you, Mario, at this stage of your life, your deepest sense of fulfillment? The deepest sense of fulfillment is to be able to, with uh, everything that's going on in my career and uh, the distractions and everything, to have been able to keep the family together throughout. Yeah, and and faith does that play a role in your life, Mario? I mean, we know you're Catholic, but uh, talk about that that part of your life. Faith does, uh, and uh, again, uh, not just the fact that uh, we had a priest in our family that was clergy, uh, and uh, that was never anything that was really pushed on us. As a matter of fact, my uncle priest, I love that man more than anyone. Uh, he was so such a modern thinker and everything. Even then. Uh, and uh, it was just that, but that uh, there was another chaplain in our camp, Lorenzo Tamberlini, who uh, really uh, somehow, without forcing things, uh, like uh, instill certain values, you know, that you maintain and keep, and and always knowing that uh, you can't do things alone. You know, you need some help, whether it's you know it's it's an abstract from upstairs or something. You know, you have to invoke something, believe in, in something, and I do. Uh, and and many times I said, you know, I need some help here, please, you know. And uh, <laughs> and, and 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 somehow it, it it works for you. It always did and it always will. And last but not least, Mario, tell us about a hobby, a pastime, 
uh, a secret passion that the audience might not expect Mario Andretti to have? Well, uh, hobbies, I mean, that's uh, what we do. I just love uh, recreation, and as you can imagine, uh, I am fortunate we have a, a place uh, up in the Poconos here. I have a lake, and, and I have uh, every toy imaginable, you know, ATVs, I have boats, I have uh, ultralight, uh, we play tennis, we water ski. I just love all the things that, you know, they're energetic, and uh, you ought to come up there. I'll get you tired really fast. You you have a deal, Mario. You know, one thing I think never leaves some some men is the thrill of speed and the thrill of competition, and that it doesn't ever leave you uh, as we as you get older. If that's who you are, and it's baked into your DNA, Mario. I I so appreciate you uh, taking the time, and I will most definitely take you up on the offer. By the way, your first victory. Uh, was in a place called Teaneck, New Jersey, and that's where I was born. I was born in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey. So. Yeah, it was a big victory. I had a hundred lapper there with um, in my three-quarter midget. Yeah. Well, I, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. Mario Andretti, uh, for the hour. Thank you so much, sir. It's my pleasure. <laughs> you bet. Mario Andretti, American Dreamers, and go to ouramericannetwork.org. dot org.